But I'll start in Galatians 3 because Paul gives a statement, and they, of course, the statements change in tone depending on the translation you read from. We understand that. But there is a, a phrase in this first verse that really has been on my mind, and I, I want to try to unpack it in a way tonight that, that uh, you leave this room with a little bit more to think about in terms of the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, the cross is not just something that should be mentioned. And I don't know what your heritage was like, but there was a lot of times in church where the cross was either, we would maybe sing the song, the old rugged cross, but then the cross would be the thing you talked about right at the end of the service, after the sermon. Jesus died on the cross. Would you like to meet Jesus? And that's okay. Put, put Jesus at the end of the sermon, um, but put him at the beginning too, maybe, maybe all the way through it. Uh, my, my point is that the cross of Jesus Christ is not a tag. The end of our songs or the end of our sermons, the cross of Jesus Christ is why we are what we are, because Christ died. And what does that mean and what does that look like? So I hope you'll leave tonight with some more ideas to think about, but I certainly don't hope you'll leave tonight having landed on what the cross is about. And the reason for that is because I don't think the cross is about one thing or two things, or ten things. I think the cross is about a lot of things. And there's no amount of time in the world to preach a sermon on what all the cross is about, so I will not try to do that either. But I do think we can present it in a way that it's almost as if we are there. And I don't mean in a Hollywood way, like watch this guy on camera get beat up by a Roman soldier, and then we feel the emotion of the death of Christ. We've all watched those movies. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not the spiritual truths of what Jesus goes through when he goes to the cross. It's just an emotional attachment to, wa to watching someone suffer. We would feel that attachment if we were watching anyone suffer. Not just particularly because it's Jesus. Um, so I'm not talking about watching, looking at a painting, and then imagining the cross. But I think the cross can be preached, presented, and lived out in a way in which it's as if we are there because we're watching the process that happened. Here's how Paul says it in Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians. What a start, right? Um, the word foolish is as close in the Greek to the English word stupid as you get in ancient Greek. Paul really comes out hot in chapter 3. You stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. I like the old King James here that says it this way, although it's a phrase that makes very little sense in our modern English. It just, it has something about it that stands out to me. He who was evidently set forth as crucified, Paul says. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it means that Paul presented Christ crucified so much that it was as if the Galatians had been at Calvary. And none of the Galatians, by the way, had been at Calvary. Also, Paul had not been at Calvary. When Jesus dies on the cross, Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus, he is an intelligent Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin who is working his way up the ranks of the scholarly minds of Israel. 
he will enter the scene of the biography of, of Jesus in the resurrected Jesus in that Saul of Tarsus b- breathes out fumings against the early church and is the source of great persecution in the book of Acts. We know that Saul is on his way to persecute more Christians when on the way to Damascus he has a revelation of the resurrected Christ and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the thorns? Um, you persecute me when you persecute my church. And Saul has a moment of conversion and revelation. His eyes go blind, blind to the old Saul. A few days later, the scales fall off his eyes and he's baptized and he receives a commission to go preach the gospel. Changes his name to Paul. The guy who was is gone. The guy who will be is, it becomes the author of two thirds of the New Testament. Literally the message of grace it sort of flows through the pen of the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't at Calvary. He wasn't not at Golgotha, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, well, the early definition in the first century of an apostle was someone who had seen Jesus. Paul called himself an apostle born out of due time. In other words, I'm an apostle born in the wrong moment. That was his way of saying, I didn't get to see Jesus. You guys, Peter, James, John, you saw Jesus. He says, but I've seen the resurrected Jesus. And so he called himself an apostle born out of due time. So not at Calvary, the Galatian church is not at Calvary. None of them were there. In fact, we are probably 25 years past the cross. A lot of the Galatian church wasn't even born when Jesus died. In a world in the, when the average life expectancy was in the low 40s, the odds that very many people in the Galatian church was even alive when Jesus was, died at Calvary is fairly low odds. And so Paul says to them, I've preached him so much, he's evidently crucified in front of you. Meaning, it's as if you saw him die. Now that's some serious cross preaching. I mean, you are presenting the message of the cross with such force, such power, such color, such meaning that your audience kind of confuses the fact that maybe they were there. I mean, have you ever heard a story? Maybe you've heard a story told so many times you could tell it. And you might say, I don't know, I've heard that so many times, it kind of feels like I was there. Well, what a way to describe the preaching of the cross. And so as the cross is presented and as Jesus is presented as evidently crucified, Here we have a message so powerful, so strong, that it's as if the Galatians saw it. Now, I want to point out one other thing, because there's some stuff I really want to try to dig into in regards to the preaching of the cross and what the preaching of the cross might look like. But there is a couple things, because you guys know me. I can't read a verse, not talk about its context, not talk about some things going on in the Greek, not talk about what might be happening behind the scenes. I already told you the word foolish is sort of the Greek, the early Greek version of stupid. Um, this is about as powerful a word of rebuke as Paul could give. The question is, why does he give it at all? And the answer to that is he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? And the word he uses there for bewitched is the word you would use for snake charmer. What snake charmer has used witchcraft on you? Now, a snake charmer is what it sounds like. Someone who charms that Cobra comes up, you've seen it, you've probably not seen it in real life, but you've seen it on, because we have TV and we have movies, we've seen about everything, and you hear that little flute music, and here comes the snake up out of the basket, 
And Paul really uses that phrase from the Greek to say, hey, Galatia, who danced the, the snake in front of you that you got? In other words, you're hypnotized like that snake is Paul's basic thing. What would you have to stare at that you'd be hypnotized like that snake? Now, notice the contrast. I preached Christ in front of you until he was evidently crucified. I preached him so much you can see it. He goes, but what are you looking at that you would be bewitched like that snake that comes up out of the basket? Now, the funny little narrative device that Paul uses here is not obvious at first because we tend to read the Bible in chapter segments. Notice I took you to chapter 3, verse 1. I didn't take you to chapter 2. Um, I didn't take you deep into chapter 3. I took you into at the beginning of chapter 3. But one of the things that you learn as you move on in the text is that Paul says, and I don't, we don't, I'm not going to take you to every verse because I know me. We'll be here all night. So we read the whole book of Galatians. But as you work through the third chapter, you get near the end of the third chapter, Paul says, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law being made a curse for you, for cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Remember that? He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Christ redeems you from the curse because Christ became the curse by hanging on the tree. In other words, the cross is the place where Jesus became cursed for you and I. Do you remember this from the ministry of Jesus? In John chapter, one, Jesus, in John chapter 3, rather, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what did he mean? Well, he's quoting the moment from the Old Testament when Israel goes through the wilderness and they're bitten by venomous snakes. And they ask God to take the snakes away. And God refuses because God doesn't take snakes out of your life. God takes venom out of your system. He's not here to take the thorns out of the rose bush. He's not here to take all the bad things out of the world. He's here to remove the power of the bad, the evil, the wicked in you. And so he is in love with redeeming humanity. And I am looking forward to a day when there is nothing else to be redeemed. But until then, as he redeems me, he removes the venom. And so the message he gives to Israel is, I'm not going to take the snakes away, but what I will do is give you a remedy. And he says, the remedy is, Moses, take a piece of bronze and make a snake out of it and stick it to a pole and hold it up in the air. And everybody that looks at the bronze snake, I'll heal you. It's the most unlikely miracle that's rarely preached in the church. No, we don't talk about this very much. What a weird moment to take a snake, put it on a pole and hold it up in front of people. And everyone that looks at it is healed. And Jesus uses that as his illustration of what he's going to do. He says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 12, he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all to me. And that all was, now is the judgment of this world. And so Jesus believed he was drawing all of the judgment against sin, all of the judgment against evil into him, like a snake on a pole. What in the world am I bringing this up for? Considering Galatians 3.1 says, who hath bewitched you? Well, because if Jesus became the snake on the pole, he was cursed on our behalf so that we are not cursed. Then Paul's contrasting the snake you ought to be looking at, Jesus as your sin, with the snake charmers that were convincing the Galatian people that they ought to be hearing another gospel. 
He says, so what snake are you staring at? Either the snake that's been crucified at Calvary. And I know that's, that goes down sideways in our Christian sensibilities because you don't want to call Jesus a snake because snakes have a bad connotation. But listen, the quicker you can realize that Jesus went to the cross to die as the snake, the quicker you can realize that the snake can have no power over you. And so Christ goes to the cross to die as the snake so that all the snakes that bite you, and I hope you, meet, you realize I don't mean real snakes out in your yard, but the quicker you realize that the spiritual snakes of this world have no power over you because you see the snake on the pole. Now that's just one thing that Jesus did at the cross. Is that the only thing Jesus did at the cross? Oh no, there's a lot of things that Jesus did at the cross. That's why, that's why this message has really been stirring in me because... Throughout Christian history, from the time before we had sort of codified the Bible as we know it, before that time, I'm I'm talking all the way back into the writings of the New Testament, and then all the way up through the last nearly 2,000 years of what is now nearly two millennia of Christian history, we have had almost an innumerable amount of theologies on the cross, and almost an innumerable amount of theologies on the gospel. We usually start to shift what it even means to be saved within two or three generations. You you might be amazed to know that if you got in a time machine and went back less than 100 years to the Church of America, don't even bother with the Church of Europe or the Church of Asia because you're going to be completely lost, particularly in how the doctrines don't line up with the, some of the things we see. But if, just, just local churches, you would be amazed at how the theology shift and the things that get emphasized from Sunday to Sunday, the things that don't get talked about. And some of that might have to do with our culture and our time and our place and our setting and the need that we have in our society. Others have to do with the fact that we emphasize one thing at the expense of another thing. We emphasize one thing as if it's the thing and the other thing is something for the Baptists and the other thing is something for the Presbyterians and the other thing is something for the Church of Gods and the other things. You see what I mean? And we, we've all kind of been guilty of that. It's like, well, here's what we talk about around here. And it's kind of a code way of saying we're the real saved ones and here's why we're really saved because here's what we think really happens in the gospel and here's what it really looks like now i don't know what those guys over there are going to tell you but you know we've all been down that road so be very careful when anyone myself included says anything resembling the following (laughs) all right and that is anything resembling um christ died because Just put a red flag up, okay? Not that it's false, but just don't take it as the only reason Christ died. So if I were to say to you, Christ died because we needed delivered from the curse. Okay, got some scriptures for that. But that's not it. That's a part of it. But I made it sound like Christ died because of that. I mean, how many of you have heard Christ died because you were going to hell? And that's where we leave it. The whole gospel. Christ died because you were going to hell. Then the gospel becomes about missing hell. Where do you not go? Where do you go if you don't go to hell? Heaven. So the gospel becomes about hell and heaven. The gospel becomes about escaping one to get to the other. Stay in that long enough and the gospel becomes about escaping one so that you can eventually escape this so that you can go there. And we get eat up with 
rallying the troops around our version of Christ died because. And it's not only exhausting, it's not fruitful because there's a whole bunch of things we're leaving out that would be beneficial if we could just investigate some of them. But no matter how many of them we investigated, we could never really exhaust all of the things that Jesus was doing on the cross. Just, just let me give you just an example. This was, I just Google searched. Christ died because. Okay, and you can run this sample on your own. I just Google searched Christ died because. And I just took the first four entries that popped up on the page. I'm not naming websites or ministries, but just... Here they are. Ten reasons Jesus came to die. Seven reasons Christ suffered and died. Fifty reasons Christ died. Two reasons Jesus died on the cross. Well, which one is it? Um, sounds like the one that's most exhaustive is 50 reasons. But if you only had the two, well, you, 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 you missed out on at least 48 others. The point being is, no matter... Where you go, someone's got a reason that Christ died on the cross, and most of the time, we're pretty convinced that our ten are better than the other two. At least eight of them are better, because, you know, we might have included your two, but we got eight more. But the guy that's got 50, he's got you all beat by at least 40 reasons. So there's a whole lot more reasons why Christ died on the cross. The point is, we can't really agree why Christ died on the cross. I mean, we can agree he did that, and he did that, and he did that, and he did that, but I could maybe bring up another one or bring up another one. So what did Paul mean when he said evidently crucified? And that's the exploration for me, because I'm, I'm into this. I'm, I've come too far in the gospel to give up, all right? I don't care what happens in the church. I don't, I've come too far in following Christ to go elsewhere, and it's not because I have a head knowledge of theology or I know my Bible, but because I've fallen in love again, all over again, with the resurrected Christ. And, and I, I, I mean, some days I don't know that I have really understood what it meant to follow Jesus. And I'm falling in love with following the sound of His voice. And so in some ways it's like getting saved all over again, which is great. That's fine. Um, I don't know what I thought of Jesus a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, but I know that I'm falling in love with this resurrected one. So I've come too far. I've had a head full of knowledge of what I thought the cross was about. It wasn't wrong. It just was never complete. I wrote a whole book on it. My second book was Between the Pieces, What Really Happened at the Cross was my subtitle. Funny little story. When that book came back to me from the publisher, they had put a question mark in my subtitle that I didn't send them. So to this day, the cover of my book is between the pieces, what really happened at the cross? And when I first saw that question mark, I was really mad. Like, how dare they put a question mark on my subtitle? I had the answer for what really happened at the cross. <laughs> it's not a question. It took me years to realize that maybe it was the Holy Spirit that accidentally dropped that question mark onto the cover of my book before it went to press so that I would realize what really happened at the cross. Get ready. We're going to learn a bunch of stuff, but we're never going to exhaust 
what really happened at the cross. Because there was a little season there where I thought, boy, I've come up with four or five or ten or twelve or my own list of 50 things that happened at the cross. People need to read this book and find out what it is. And I still stand by the things in that book as stuff that happened at the cross. But I'm glad the question mark is on the cover of that book now because the question mark gives me room to go, Oh, there was some stuff happening at the cross I didn't know about when I saw that because I've continued to fall in love with him and continued to, vis- to see him and he is being evidently crucified in front of me in so many ways. Here's one of Paul's contributions, by the way, because it's not foreign to the New Testament to say things like Jesus died because. I mean, Peter says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? That sounds pretty... That sounds to me like he put my sins in, in his body when he went to Calvary. Well, here's one. Look at Romans 14, verse 9. I want to show you Paul had his own moment of going, hey, here's why Christ died. And then what I want to do is share with you a few of the ones that I have shared over the years. Romans 14, 9, Paul says, actually, start in 7, because you've got to have a little bit of context. This is actually a new paragraph in verse 7. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again. To this end is, this is why Jesus died And this is why Jesus resurrected, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So Paul's version of, hey, let me tell you why Christ died, sounds like this. Christ died and resurrected so that he could be Lord over everyone who is dead and over everyone who is alive. In other words, it was Paul's way of saying Christ died so that he could understand death and Christ died so that he could be Lord over everyone that dies and Christ resurrected so that you would understand new life and so that Christ could be Lord over everyone who is alive because where Paul goes next is every one of us is going to stand in front of God every one of us is going to give account of himself before God in other words whether you are alive or whether you are dead Jesus has died at Calvary so that he can be Lord over those who have died and he is able to be Lord over those who have lived. It sounds a little bit like Paul might be saying, and I say might be saying because I didn't get to interview the Apostle Paul. That would be fun. But it sounds like he might be saying that God wanted that so that God could judge the dead, God needed to know what it was like to die. You might say, well, God knows what everything is like. Yes, but it's one thing to speak. It's another thing to do. And so when God becomes a man, I think that's also why at Calvary he goes, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Dad, I've been human. It ain't easy. We need to forgive them. This is, this is a hard journey. And so Paul gives his own little theory. Now, I'm not saying this is Paul's only theory. I just told you he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We opened in Galatians 3 where Paul says, hey, who snake charmed you? The snake you ought to be looking at is the one who was cursed on a pole for you. In other words... Jesus became a curse at the cross. So Paul's cross theology is thick. I mean, it is deep. He's all over the place on cross theology. So it's okay to be all over the place on cross theology. I'm going to land you tonight with Paul because 
I think Paul comes up with the, the way to say this that sort of speaks to where I am or where I'm trying to get to in my own walk and I think where we all are. But before I do that, a few years ago, um, I had a, a, a dear friend of mine who's a, who does missions work to Guatemala. Uh, he called me up and said, hey, I'm, I'm going back for the, uh, he had been there 20 plus years. Every year we'd go in and do camps and and teach and he, he asked me and I was honored he asked me if I would write up a series of lessons for his Guatemalan outreach he said I want to teach on the cross and so I, I prepared seven lessons for him to go into Guatemala and, and teach on the cross and he wanted really user-friendly give me a few verses talk about something the cross did and I remember really having to distill sort of a lot of thought processes down into these seven lessons. I thought I'd just kind of read them off for you, all right, and give you a biblical thought about each one. I'm not going to run you all over the Bible because <laughs> seven of them are be here all night. We could preach one, but um, just to show you there's a bunch of stuff happening at the cross, all right, because I don't want you to I don't want you to in any way think that what I'm trying to say is that we can't find out what happened at the cross. I think we can't ever exhaust what happened at the cross. I think we can keep finding out what happened at the cross. I think where we might get ourselves into a little trouble is when we just land and we're done. And we don't keep paying attention to what Jesus did for us. The cross ought to be the source of constant wonder for the Christian. Because the cross shows us everything of heaven distilled in a man pre preceding the resurrection of a new man on the earth it's god becoming us dying as us so that he can resurrect on the earth as the new man it's that's i don't even know what to do with that so i'm always in awe of it and so i i, I don't want you to think we can't figure out some things going on at the cross i just don't want us to be satisfied that we've landed there. I spent too long satisfied that I'd pretty much have the cross figured out. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus was cursed, so I don't have to be, you know, list off a few things here and there. But to be evidently crucified is to see something so powerful that we don't forget. So, so here's a few, okay? Not exhausting, not exhaustive, tons of them. And explore them on your own and stretch on your own. But I just want to run through them in the order I gave them. The cross was a sacrifice. Pretty simple. If you were going to teach the cross to little kids, you'd probably start right there. We, there, there was a religion of Judaism that used, to sat, that used to sacrifice lambs and goats and pigeons and bullocks and turtle doves, and they would shed the blood of an animal. But before they did, they would lay their hands on that animal as a transference of what they had done wrong so that it would be put into that animal. And then they would kill that animal and offer it up on a sacrificial altar and they would burn it with fire. And when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which was his way of saying, Behold the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he became the Lamb for all mankind, all Jews, all Gentiles, men, women, past, present, and future, all sacrifice in one man. Behold the Lamb. It's why Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, he became the lifted up sacrifice. His sacrifice for my sins, for me. And because Christ is a sacrifice at the cross, my sacrifices all come up short. 
So I can sacrifice to God, but none of my sacrifices can save me. I can give money, but I can't buy my way into what Christ did in his own body. I can give time, but I can't give enough time for what God did in the timeless realm of dying at Calvary. Do you see? These are examples of sacrifice. This is why we must teach obedience to believers as a response to what has happened, not as a motivation to get God to move on our behalf. I'm going to do so that God will bless me. I'm going to read so that God will, will help me. I'm going to church so that God, I'll give, God will give. I'll pray, God will respond. And it's like a big spiritual slot machine that we keep putting prayer and fasting and church attendance and spiritual investment into and believe that if we pull the lever, maybe all the cherries will pop up and God will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing we're not able to contain. If it doesn't happen this time, maybe it'll happen next time. If it doesn't happen at the spring revival, maybe it'll happen at the fall revival. Wherever it happens, we're just going to keep investing, investing. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding that when Christ went to the cross, He was the sacrifice. Christ paid for all that I can't pay for. And if I used to put my hands on a goat or a sheep and all of my sins went into the goat or the sheep, then if Jesus is the lamb, what went into Jesus when he went to the cross? Everything I could ever do wrong went into Christ and so sin and evil taken care of in the ultimate sacrifice. Oh man, the cross was an awesome place. Now, all of that is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that's not all the cross was. The cross was also a gateway back into the garden. Now, think about it. When Adam and Eve are booted out of the Garden of Eden, they're booted out because they eat from the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They gain human consciousness but they reject the tree of life and God says we need to get them out of the garden lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever because the tree of life is going to be personified in the man Christ Jesus. And so Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden and the Bible says in the book of Genesis that a sword goes over the top of the tree of life and it spins every which way a flaming sword so that no one can come and eat from the tree. And on the night that Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples that if they smite the shepherd, my sheep are going to scatter. And he's quoting the book of Zechariah that says, Awake, O sword, and smite the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And Jesus is declaring himself to be the shepherd that gets stabbed by some sort of sword. A sword gets pierced into his side and blood and water flows at Calvary. Jesus pulls a prophetic text from the Old Testament and says, Wake up, sword, the sword that's been asleep, all the way back there in the garden, guarding the way to the tree of life, wakes up and stabs Jesus so that you can approach the tree because the sword has already met its intended victim and you can't be the intended victim of the sword because Jesus was smitten so that you don't have to be smitten. And since the sword is no longer flaming over the tree of life, 
Everyone that wants to eat from the tree of life is able to come. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, the Bible says that the gates are open at the New Jerusalem and there are trees running down each side of the river. And you know what their names are? The tree of life. And there are leaves on every tree that are for the healing of the nations. And the gates of the city are wide open so that people can come in and eat from the tree of life. And why are people able to come in and eat? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took the sword that blocked our way to the living water and the healing leaves. He put it into himself so that nothing stops you from receiving the life of God. That's one thing the cross did. And Jesus even prophesied about it. Right before he took his last breath, the criminal looked at him and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you know what the word paradise is in the Hebrew? Eden. Today, I'm going to take you back into the garden. Because the sword that kept you out of God's kingdom is about to be quenched in me so that you can come and have whatever it is you need from my Father. That's a great message on the cross right there, man. That's it. But that's not it. I mean, that's just one thing the cross is. That's not the only thing the cross is. The cross is also the antidote to a curse. Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Because Christ becomes the snake on the pole, no curse can fall on all of us who see the snake on the pole. God didn't remove snakes from the world, but he gave the antidote for the snake in the world. He didn't remove all of your problems. He didn't take you out of, always out of harm's way, did he? No. And we lie to people if we tell them that by meeting Jesus, he takes them out of harm's way. We know better. But what does he do? He provides the antidote for the venom. Whatever bites you, whatever harms you, whatever comes against you, whatever attacks you. Christ became that thing. He didn't become just part of that. He became that thing so that he could die at Calvary. This is why I say to you that when you look at Jesus at Calvary, don't look at a guy who is innocent. Look at a guy who is guilty. Why? Because if you can see him as guilty, you know he didn't do anything wrong. So who put all that guilt in him? Maybe then we can let go of our own guilt. Maybe then we can let go of our own condemnation. Maybe then we can let go of our own shame. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. You don't hang on a tree, but Christ hang, hung on a tree. And because Christ hanged on that tree, cursed is Christ, therefore no curse can fall on you. That allows you to rebuke this idea that you're under a generational curse. Or that someone cursed your grandfather. Or that someone cursed the ground. Or so that someone cursed your personal economy. Or they cursed your body. Rebuke that in Jesus' name. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Christ was made to be the curse so that you don't have to be the, the curse. So that you don't have to be underneath the curse. That's a pretty good cross message. It's not the only cross message. It's just a little angle of the cross message. The cross is also the death and the rebirth of Adam. Think about it. Adam is created in the garden... And because of Adam's sin, men are born into sin and we are failures and we can think that first father. And then Paul says, and then came a last Adam. And he calls, the, he calls Jesus the last Adam. And so Adam dies at Calvary so that a new Adam can be born when the stone rolls away at resurrection. So the cross is the place 
where everything from the past meets its end, and the resurrection is a place where everything from the future gets its beginning. So that when the stone rolls away, it isn't just rolling away 2,000 years ago on what we call Easter Sunday morning. It's rolling away forever over everything that ever held you back. So that never again does the old you have to win. There's always the possibility of the sun coming up tomorrow and the stone rolling away. The resurrection becomes that event that lives on over and over and over again. If I can see me in Christ, then I can see a new me on the earth tomorrow, a new me in my marriage, a new me on the earth, a new me in my health, a new me in every possible way. I'm not a slave to what I used to be. That's the cross. But that's just an angle of the cross. The cross is the breaking of a covenant. This one is sometimes a little tougher for us. The book of Zechariah says that God offered Israel the chance to buy him out of the covenant that he had with his people. The covenant he had with his people was the covenant he cut at Sinai. Here's the Ten Commandments. In the book of Zechariah, God says, I'll give my people a chance to buy me out of the covenant. And he said, and they'll buy me out of it. And when they pay me, I'll break my covenant in half. And he prophesied that they would offer him 30 pieces of silver. And when Judas Iscariot sold the Lord Jesus to the Jewish authorities in the Gospels, he said, what will you give me to bring you Jesus? And they reached back into the prophecy and pulled out 30 pieces of silver and offered it to Judas for the Lord Jesus, which became a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that if they'll pay me 30 pieces of silver, I'll snap the old covenant that I have with them. When Jesus died at Calvary, it cost them 30 pieces of silver to have Jesus. And 30 pieces of silver was the price they slid across the cosmic table at God to say, get rid of the old covenant. So when Jesus died at Calvary, the old covenant had its back broken. No more efficiency or effectiveness in a world of performance-based religion. No more do good, get good. No more do bad, get bad. Jesus breaks that at the cross so that we could enter a new covenant. This is why the book of Hebrews says he, is, he gave us a, new, a better covenant built on better promises. You know what a better covenant is? One that I can't screw up. That's better. I mean, if the old covenant was... God's always good. I'm not. So God's not getting anything to worry about. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not always up to snuff. So I got some problems. I got some things to worry about. You know what would be a better covenant? Regardless of whether you're up to it or not, I'm going to give you your inheritance anyway. And Jesus is prophesying of something like that in that great story of the prodigal son. Dad, give me my inheritance. And he gives him his inheritance and he goes out and he blows it on riotous living and he's slopping hogs somewhere in a foreign country. And he goes, I believe I'll go home. Be as one of my dad's hired hands. And as he gets home, his dad puts new shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger, a robe around his neck and won't hear him talk about being a servant. Instead, he kills the fatted calf. The fatted calf is reserved for the celebration of family. And he puts his son at the table. That's covenant. That's... He took the old 
And he got rid of it so that he could bring us something better. A better covenant built on better promises. That's why the book of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 8, that which is old is obsolete and ready to vanish away. What's old and obsolete? It's the same chapter in which he introduces the new covenant. So we have a new covenant because the old covenant, and this was first century Christianity. He goes, first century Christianity, that old thing is passing away. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's only one thing Jesus has done for us. The cross was also the manifestation of the love of God. That's one of my favorite thoughts about the cross, is the cross is showing us that what Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And then not long later, he hangs on Calvary and he lays his own life down. And they remember him saying that, that the greatest love a man could have is to lay his life down for someone that he loves. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, 8, that at the cross, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. God demonstrated how much he loved us in that while we didn't even care, Jesus died. Long before you paid any attention to the love of God, the love of God was paying attention to you. Long before you gave any credence at all to to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was chasing you. I, I love that image that in the moments when I've rejected him or just ignored him or been bored with him or disagreed with him or even stopped believing in him, his love was chasing me down. He was on my tail. (laughs) He was trailing me to show me a revelation of his love. The cross is that demonstration. One more that I'll give, and that is that the cross was the inauguration of a new covenant. Not only did it break an old covenant, but it brought a new covenant. And what happens in the new covenant? Well, the book of Hebrews is chock full of all kinds of things that happen. We get the internalization of the Holy Spirit. We, we destroy the old spiritual hierarchy. No longer do you have to have a priest or a man or woman of God go talk to God for you. You get to talk to the Father anytime you want, anywhere you want, about anything you want, as long as you want. Um, you, you don't have to offer up a blood sacrifice. You don't even have to be the sacrifice. You just accept the sacrifice of Jesus. These are new covenant promises, things that are given to us because of God's covenant. Now, everything I just mentioned, it's just seven little things. Could have been 50 things, obviously. Could have been 100 things. Could have been 1,000 things. We could have tried to limit it to one thing. Point is, it's not all Jesus did on the cross. Jesus provided for his mom on the cross. Woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. He provided an occupation for John. He goes into the dark. He suffers in the dark. He comes out the other side of the light. Maybe it's Jesus going into the dark because he knows you're going to go into. I used to say Jesus suffered in the dark so that we could always live in the light. I don't say that anymore because we don't always live in the light. Jesus suffered in the dark because sometimes we do. And he had to go in there to find us. Because he knew we would go in there and hurt and cry and be scared because that's what life does to us. It kicks us when we're down and it turns the lights off. And with no hope, with no one to hold our hand, Jesus walked into the darkness at Calvary. Three hours of darkness where the heavens grow dark so that God knows what it's like. So that God 
knows what it feels like to be absolutely left alone so that he feels all the pain you feel in your abandonment and your darkness at 3 o'clock in the morning and you don't think anybody cares and so that Jesus can say, I know how you feel. I've been there. That's just one thing the cross is. But it can never not be that. It can be all that other stuff, but it can never not be that. It can never not be all that other stuff too. Because sometimes, you know what I need to hear? God loves me. You know what I need to hear other times? You're not under a performance covenant. You know what I need some other times? Paul, stop trying to kill yourself for God. Jesus was your sacrifice. You know what I need another day? You're under a new covenant. You can't screw this up. You know what I need another day? He provides for you. Another day I need, I need help in the dark. I don't know what to do. And in all of those, I've just scratched the surface of what Jesus did at the cross. What Jesus paid for on my behalf. They're all fine. They're just not complete. That's why I tell you to put a red flag up when someone goes, Jesus died because. Just put the red flag up. You don't have to reject what comes next. Just realize that there's a whole bunch of stuff they could say next. And the moment they stop and put a period on it, there's a bunch of stuff they left out. I don't care if it's 500 things Jesus did for you on the cross. Maybe if I'd have scrolled farther down on the Google search, there would have been someone that said, here's 813 things Jesus did for you on the cross. Well, we would have gotten closer, but even then I don't know that we could exhaust it. Because we still keep growing into the things Jesus did for us on the cross. And my point there is this. Don't get tired of hearing about the finished work. Because Jesus finished the work at the cross. Jesus says on Calvary in John 19, it is finished. Greek word tetelestai. It's absolutely done. Past, present, and future. There's nothing left It's as finished today as it was yesterday. It will be as finished tomorrow as it is today. Don't get tired of it as finished. Because even though he finished the work, he isn't finished working. He finished the work at Calvary, but he's not finished working in you. He isn't finished showing you how much he loves you. He isn't finished getting you out of the old covenant. He isn't finished pulling grave clothes off of you, you resurrected saint. That's what you are. You're a resurrected saint. You say, well, I haven't even died yet. Yes, when you met Christ, the old Adam went in and died and a new you stood up. You still hold on to this old flesh, but this thing's going away too. And the new you will never die. So glorious is that that Revelation says that those who partake in that first resurrection never taste the second death. That's the book of Revelation saying those of you who realize you've resurrected in Christ, you're only going to die one time. And the natural body falls away, but the real you lives on. And since you're partaking in the resurrection right now, not fully, but partially, it's why the cross is never exhausted for you. Because there's still parts of you that keep meeting its end in Jesus. Parts of your greed, parts of your jealousy, parts of your lust, parts of your selfishness, parts of your pride. You're not not saved because of it. You're saved despite it. Because you have a Christ who ever lives to intercede on your behalf. Why? Because he died for us. Because he took all of that. 
I got to think that's a little bit of what Paul meant when he said Christ was evidently crucified in front of you. I've been giving you so many angles of the cross. It's as if you were there to watch it. And I hope to God that we have all seen Jesus evidently crucified and that we'll keep seeing him evidently crucified. Why that phrase evidently? Let's land here. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. And I promise I'm almost done. (laughs) I promise I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. Look at that phrase. I did not come to add eloquent wisdom to it because that would zap the cross of its power. So we don't put the cross in front of people by being clever. See, I've just given you seven things the cross did, but then I talked through three or four or five or six more. It's obvious that there's so many we can't exhaust it. But no matter how many we come up with, we never really get to the bottom of what the cross is just by talking about it. And no matter how eloquent the wisdom is, all we could really do is keep the cross from doing what it's best at doing because we don't discover the beauty of the cross by hearing clever sermons on the cross or reading a book that thinks it knows what happened at the cross. I've tried to write that book. That doesn't teach us the cross. If anything, it can just zap the cross of its power because we end up thinking we've landed on something instead of watching what the cross really does. Look at chapter 2, same book, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom. Now watch this. But with a demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Three times in our two passages he mentioned wisdom. Back in chapter 1, I didn't come with elegant words of wisdom. I didn't want to zap the cross of its power. And then he said, I did not come with words, lofty words of wisdom. I just came preaching the cross. And then he said, I didn't want plausible words of wisdom. I wanted to demonstrate through the power of the Spirit. Is Paul anti-wisdom? No. But he realizes that you don't see the cross by hearing words. You see the cross by demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. So, should we just be seeing miracles in the church? If we saw a bunch of miracles, that would get people to believe. I got news for you. Miracles do not make people believe. Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle, and they put him on a cross. God did miracle after miracle after miracle for Israel, and they left him. Because miracles do not make people believe. They just make people dependent on the next miracle. It's not that we need miracles. If we had miracles, people would believe. It's that we need to see the cross actually changing people. And we're not seeing it out of our leadership, our pastors. We're not seeing it out of our family members. We're not seeing it out of our friends because we've not put the standard of what the cross does to be transformed lives. And the cross should be constantly changing us. 
Yes, the church needs to get back to a place of repentance. But I don't mean that in the, face, in the way of laying the carpet and beg God to forgive America of her sins. No, I mean we need to get back to the place where we repent the way the Bible says repent. Repent means change your mind. And we need to get back to where we're changing our mind about God. And we're not doing it once in a while. We're doing it all the time. Because if you don't change your mind, you don't change. And if you don't change, you don't transform. And if you don't transform, you can't prove the cross is working. Because then it's just a bunch of wisdom. But if you change, the cross works. That's what Paul said. I could have just told you stuff. I could give you seven things the cross does. But I want you to see that I used to be Saul and hateful. A Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But I count it all dung for the knowledge of the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I don't know him yet, but I'm going to know him better tomorrow. The guy you see standing in front of you will not be the guy you see standing in front of you next time you see me. That's preaching the cross with power. God, give us leaders that will admit that they were wrong, that will say they didn't have it right, that will say that they're pliable. We have elevated rock-solid unchangeableness as the highest quality of leadership in America. We think that's the kind of leader we want, someone that never changes their mind. I don't think we've been impressed with the cross. The cross is ever-changing people that meet the cross. It doesn't let you be the same. It changes the way you think, Changes the way you act. Changes the way you love your neighbor. Changes the way you respond. This isn't a, hey guys, you better change. No, I don't care if you change or not. You changing you wouldn't do much good anyway. I'm talking about meeting Christ and Him crucified and letting Him transform you because you repent, because you open your mind to new things and you let Jesus begin to do the work and you change your mindsets and you shift those and you go before the Father. You bring that repentance to Him. I can talk about the cross all night. And all I could probably do is zap it of its ability to actually do something in you. Unless, by talking about it, I simply gave you a few other ways to look at the cross. But to really let it work, it can't just be a guy or his book. It has to be watching it transform lives and letting him go to work in who you are. I hope... But what we do at Chapin is show you Christ evidently crucified. But even if we do show him evidently crucified, it's still you that has to look at him. Because how did we open this sermon? Oh, foolish Galatians. Who bewitched you? I preached Jesus so much, it was as if he was evidently crucified. And you're still looking at the wrong snake. Instead of the one cursed on a pole, you're staring at the hypnotizer. He used the word bewitched. It's a witchcraft verse. He go, and hey, he's out there preaching Christ crucified and grace and the new covenant. So what do you think the bewitching sermon was? Well, maybe a bunch of stuff that's not grace, new covenant, and Christ crucified. But whatever it is, just telling you about the cross doesn't keep you from being bewitched. You go change your mind about God. You go have your experience with him. 
listen to his voice. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight. What a privilege. Thank you for such a wonderful, beautiful group of people. Every one of these are your precious kids. You have taught me, and I'm learning it. I haven't learned it, but I'm learning it. To take very serious talking to your kids. Because you got to watch it when you talk about another man's family. So I hope I've treated them with the love and the respect that they deserve because they're yours. But I also hope that we've given them reason to hope. Given them a little reason to believe. Given them a little something to think about. If they walk out of here tonight, Father, and they have a couple of other ideas about the cross that they didn't have before, that's a step in the right direction. If they walk out of here with 7 or 10 or 15 things they never thought about the cross before, that's fine too. But Father, the real work is when we allow our minds to change about who you are and we allow the cross to actually go to work. And to do that, we've got to get our hands off the wheel and let you do what you want to do. And I can't do that in anyone else's life but mine. So I pray you do the work in Jesus' name. Amen.